There's a huge market on the internet for podcasts about conspiracies. I've never gotten into that genre on the show, but I couldn't help it when my experts today showed up with exclusive information about the most famous assassination in modern history. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guests today are Katana Zachary and Sarah Peterson. These two are responsible for The Lone Star Speaks, a book that is providing a wealth of new information compiled from all news sources after the legal restrictions, confidentiality agreements, and non-disclosures on sharing information finally ran out all these decades later. And while most people know the story of President JFK's assassination, I had to do a lot more research to get through this topic, because boy oh boy is it a dense name salad of conspiracy theories. Thankfully, last podcast on the left did a great series that made it much easier to learn some of the harder parts of the theories out there. We did our best to keep it simple so everyone can follow, but here's a quick rundown of a couple key things in case you don't recognize them. LBJ, or Johnson, refers to President Lyndon B. Johnson, who took over as president after the assassination. And the Warren Report is the government's official conclusion to what happened during the events before, during, and after the killing of the president. It is also notoriously riddled with errors of all kinds. Also, sorry this episode is a release day late, but because of all the information and the need to discuss misconceptions, this ended up as one of the longest episodes I've ever done. Almost to the point that I considered making it a two-part episode, but I just couldn't find a good place to cut it. And I had entirely forgotten to announce that I was at the National Publicity Summit on Thursday, which took up my editing time, but will allow for some cool guests in the future. Let's not kill any presidents. Please. Welcome to the show, Katana Zachary and Sarah Peterson. Thank you. We appreciate you having us. Good morning. So excited to have both of you on. Why don't you kind of introduce yourselves for the audience? I'm Katana Zachary. Uh, Sarah and I are the co-authors of one of the newest books on the Kennedy assassination called The Lone Star Speaks, Untold Texas Stories About the JFK Assassination. And one of the things that people ask us so often is how our book is different from the uh, literally thousands of other books about the assassination. And we always say that, first of all, we did not have an agenda when we began writing this. Right, Sarah? We did not have an agenda. A lot of people, when they write their books, they want to prove a thesis. We did not. We wanted to start with an open mind and where the evidence led us. That is what we wrote in our book. Our book's a little different because we used primary sources. We found individuals, mostly, who had never spoken to someone before, 
And their stories are in our book. And then we did research to back up with evidence what they had told us. And some of the witnesses who we call our voices, uh, they verified each other without knowing about the other person. So it's interesting when people will look at our table of contents uh, at book signings and say, well, I've never heard of this person and I've never heard of that person. And we'll say we never did either until we happened to find them or he or she found us. But believe me, they have a fascinating story to tell. So it's not going to be a rehash of the same old documentaries you see all the time. Yeah, and as you said, this is one of those topics that has thousands of books, has millions of man hours pushed into it. Like, it is truly one of the most broad, kind of conspiracy-rich stories that exists in the world. Exactly, and after almost 60 years, it's just as controversial as it was in 1963. Yes, absolutely. So let's let's get, like, the most basic picture of what happened or what the the primary story is for everyone out there who is maybe just kind of familiar with the JFK assassination? Well, basically the story is President Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. They decided that the person that shot him was Lee Harvey Oswald, and they decided that he was on the sixth floor of the school book depository. That is what the Warren Commission, that was their official statement on it after nine months of investigating, and that is basically it in a nutshell that they tried to sell to the American public. And they did sell it. It's called the Warren Report, and millions of people bought it. We now know there there was a lot more to the story than just that. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of this was kind of, like this was the start of modern conspiracies, because we didn't ever get to hear anything out of Lee Harvey Oswald, because he was also assassinated a day later. <laughs> You're right. Uh, and in a way, you've got a good point there, Colton, uh, except that when you look back in history, there was a conspiracy to kill Lincoln. The difference between that and Kennedy's is nobody denied there was a conspiracy to kill Lincoln. It was obvious. And what seemed to take place in 1963 was an immediate uh, whitewash to try to prevent the idea that there was a conspiracy even though there was tons of evidence that there obviously was. Yeah, it seems like we could have gotten such a clean picture if we were like, okay, let's have our big trial, let's address whatever it is Lee Harvey Oswald has to say, we look at all of the evidence that way, and instead you have this man kind of come out of nowhere, Jack Ruby, who shoots Lee Harvey Oswald and abruptly ends kind of our answers, our clean-cut answers at least, to everything. And that, like you said, spins into the Warren Commission. And that in itself is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Like the Warren Commission and all of their whole job. Right. They're, they had a pre-idea and they knew that they had to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald 
was a lone nutter and that he was the only one who shot Kennedy and that it wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't anything international. And that is what they had to prove from day one. And that's what came out of their report. But researchers started looking into this when the assassination actually happened. And there were so many questions that either the ones that knew things were wrong had to sign a confidentiality agreement with the military or with intelligence or they worked for the mafia or CIA and so they could not come forward. Well, after 50 years when the confidentiality agreement went away for military intelligence or medical people, they started coming forward and letting people know. And Colton, you're right. Uh, the first, or at least most people thought that the first evidence of a cover-up was Jack Ruby killing Oswald. I remember my parents saying, look, I, I bought most of this story until this happened right in front of all these millions of people and something's fishy about this. But to be honest with you, the cover-up began even before then. That was kind of the uh, last nail in the coffin, I guess. Uh, one of the witnesses that we spoke with was a woman named Connie Critzberg. She had been a reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald. She had talked to two of the Parkland doctors, including Dr. Malcolm Perry, who had been one of the uh, main uh, doctors to work on President Kennedy and try to save his life. They had made an effort to reach the Dallas Times-Herald, any reporter, and she happened to get the call, to try to tell them what they had seen that day, not because they thought something was going to be covered up. They weren't sure whether the president's press secretary's uh, report had actually reached the media, and they knew how important it was to reporters to get a firsthand story. So they, they told them exactly what they saw. Uh, what what appeared to be a small entry wound in the throat, a huge exit wound in the back of the head. They really couldn't tell because they didn't get a chance to examine the body, whether the, in, the bullet going in is the one that caused the massive blowout at the back. And they were honest about that. They said, we really cannot tell whether there was one shot, two shots, three shots. We didn't get a chance to examine it that closely. She wrote her story that very afternoon of November 22nd, and it appeared in the next day's issue of the Dallas Times-Herald. Well, like most reporters, she grabbed the paper to read her own story. They all do. And here was a sentence in there that she had not written. And it said, doctors admitted that one shot could have caused all the wounds. They had not said that at all. And so she called downtown and Basically, he said, what on earth happened to my story? I mean, reporters do not like to have their words changed. And there was an editor that answered the phone, and he said, Connie, the FBI changed it. So that was happening on the afternoon, hours after the assassination. Yeah, I mean, that started happening immediately. And, uh, I mean, the whole story really, like, it spins a picture that they want you to see. Cause like you said, I had to do some research just to make sure I had a good grasp on this. 
And the Warren Commission seems like they were set up with this impossible job that had to have one outcome. They're like, look, you have a dozen people and 20,000 pages of information. I want this done in a couple months, eight months or something. Absolutely. And our first witness that we met was Assistant Attorney General of Texas, Robert T. Davis. And when we met with him, he told us that uh, Wagner Carr had asked him to sit in on some of the Warren Commission investigations in Dallas. And he knew from the beginning that Johnson was running it, that Johnson was in control. That And he came back to Wagner Carr and he said it was the biggest whitewash he'd ever seen and that the members sitting in on these uh, commission investigations were very lackadaisical. They'd show up or they'd walk out of the room or, you know, they wouldn't even be there and they weren't listening. So he knew from the beginning that the Warren Commission was whitewash and a joke. And as an attorney, he even asked questions. We found his name in the actual uh, interrogations. Uh, as an attorney, he realized they deliberately did not follow up on questions that should have been asked after other questions. When a, a witness would say something that he hadn't said in his rehearsals speech, you know, they prepared them for their interrogation they would stop them immediately. And if you read the Warren report, you cannot count how many times it says off the record, off the record. I would love to have a little a transcript of what was said off the record. That probably would be the truest version of what pe these people said that we could get. And then we met witnesses who did talk to the Warren Commission and their testimony is there, but the Warren Commission changed their testimony. When you see it written down in black and white, that is not what they told them at all. It sounds really shocking. And then I had to look at like, well, who who is running this Warren Commission? And it's by two people that arguably had the most to gain by eliminating JFK, the man who became president, and uh, Alan Dulles, right? The one who had been fired right. by JFK. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was like, uh, and also the FBI had some problems with them, and yet who's investigating it for them? The FBI. Now, they're not going to investigate themselves, I can promise you. Right. Yeah, so you end up like, okay, so people that either wanted him dead or benefited from him dead are the people in charge of this report, and they say, find this outcome. And it's exactly like they did quite a lot of you know, changing of official statements in order to fit their opinion in, from what I'm hearing from you. Well, and one of the most famous memos was written, was written by an assistant attorney general to Robert Kennedy, Nicholas Kotzenbach, and he made a comment that he said, we want to basically to make sure the public believes that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only assassin. And that <laughs> was on Sunday after the assassination. He wrote that memo. So, you know, when that's the goal, then, hey, it's not too easy. To, I mean, not too hard to do that. You just eliminate or ignore any kind of evidence that's going to point the other direction. Okay. So 
when you two started looking into this and you started talking to people, did things, I mean, what fell apart first? Like, what was the biggest immediate hole in the story? Well, well, Robert, uh, Robert T. Davis's comment to us was the first official person that we'd ever heard say this was a whitewash. Now, you hear researchers say that, but this man was the assistant attorney general of Texas. And then right in the middle of Austin, Texas, which is Johnson country, he blurted out, Johnson was controlling the whole thing. And then he referred to Lady Bird as Vulture Bird. And we thought the shots were going to come. I mean, we weren't sure we we were going to get out of Austin alive because, you know, it's not as much dominated by Johnson as it was at one time, but still it's the home of his presidential library. And here he was yelling that across a restaurant. But that's how, you know, adamant he was that this was a joke of an investigation. So once you once you put that down, the other people who were saying similar things made more sense. And then we met a gentleman that we call Lieutenant Jay Good. And he told us about an abort team. And we're here, what do you mean an abort team? And he said that he was in Dealey Plaza and his commander was U.S. Marshal Robert I. Nash. And we're here, well, why were you in Dealey Plaza? And he told us that they knew there was a hit out on Kennedy and that it was either going to take place in Dealey Plaza at the trademark and Love Field and on their team to prevent it or for individuals. But he only knew the commander because Things were on a need-to-know basis, and they were down on the the railroad track area, and what they saw was not a shooter from the sixth floor. What they saw was something that came from the Southwest Knoll and something from the Daltex. That's where they believed the shooters were, which, and if someone... Where then, if you know Dealey Plaza on the grassy knoll, that would make a perfect crossfire. So they ran over to the south knoll and they did find a spent bullet. And they took it over to the school book depository and tried to give it in as evidence. And the FBI told them that they didn't need it. They had all the, the evidence they needed. And one thing we discovered, Colton, is that uh, the U.S. Marshals must be one of the most independent branches of the government that we have. Because when we said, well, were you working with the FBI or the local police or whatever, uh, this gentleman chuckled and said, no, you know, U.S. Marshal Nash put together his own team of people who were there to prevent this from happening. And uh so he said he didn't work for the FBI, and I don't know whether it's because he didn't trust them or if he knew enough. He was stationed there in, in Dallas. He was uh, head of the North Texas branch of the U.S. Marshals, but he certainly did not work for the Sheriff's Department or with the Dallas Police Department. He went out on his own without telling anyone that he had take, put together this team of observers who were supposed to do something to uh, ab- keep uh, interfere, to interfere, to intervene, 
and keep this from happening. So the question we asked was, what? so I guess you mean you were there to try to find Lee Harvey Oswald? And he just laughed. He said, no, we were looking for snipers, not a lone nut who was upset with his wife and going off the deep end. How would we have known that? You know, we were we had heard all the buzz there was about a combination of military uh, set up and who all else may have worked with them. And that's what we were there to prevent, trained snipers. So our next question to Good was, did you know Oswald? And he said, which one? I knew them both, and they both were there that day. So Katana and I, think about that for a minute. So Katana and I went to the triple overpass where they were, and one of us stood on the very far end, closer to where the grassy knoll would be, and the other one ducked down at the end of the triple underpass. If you've ever been there, it's not straight. It curves at the top, and we bent, and one of us bent down to be like a sniper, and the other one who was standing on the other far end could not see. Katana was standing on the other end. I was bent down. She could not see me. So that would have been a perfect crossfire for a sniper. He could have packed up that rifle and escaped down the little hill into the post office parking lot. So one of the first people that ever suggested there were shots fired from the south side, at least publicly, was the gentleman that talked to us and also a woman named Sherry Feister. And there are still people that will just jump up and down and almost scream and say, what are you talking about? How can shots have been fired from the south side of the uh, Dealey Plaza? Well, there is an area, like Sarah said, where you cannot see a sniper if he is at the what's called the curve of the triple overpass. Even people standing on the triple overpass would not have noticed someone around that little bend that there was there. Interesting. So, I mean, what most people have kind of come to know is like, oh, Lee Harvey Oswald is the shooter. Does most evidence kind of argue that that's, he didn't take a shot from the book depository? Well, Chief Jesse Curry of the Dallas Police Department made a very interesting statement, and he published it. He put it in his book called The Assassination File. He said, we never could have proven that Lee Harvey Oswald was on the sixth floor with a rifle shooting at the president at the time the motorcade went by. And that was after the assassination when they supposedly gathered every bit of information they could. And it was also at a time when he could have bragged and said, oh, yes, you know, it's a shame we didn't get up there sooner. We could have prevented this, but there's no doubt Oswald did it. He did not say that. He said if basically if they had gone to trial, they would not have been able to convict Lee Harvey Oswald, which could explain why Jack Ruby took matters into his own hands. It's very interesting. One of the um, one of the arguments I had seen is they're like, this wouldn't have been Oswald's first time attempting an assassination either. They're like, so it's not implausible that he'd have attempted this because he once tried to shoot, I believe it was another governor, right? Sometime in his past. Well, it was Walker, General Walker, but again, 
was he the one who shot at Walker or was it someone else? How many times, okay, if you're of the philosophy that Oswald did this, then you believe probably he shot at General Walker. If you believe there were more than one person impersonating a person named Lee Harvey Oswald, and that they were in the same city at the same time or in different cities with or countries with using the name Lee Harvey Oswald, then who actually did the shooting of shooting at General Walker? That it has not been proved that Lee Harvey Oswald shot at General Walker. And oddly enough, they're really considering this man was a general and very popular in Dallas. Now, he wasn't very popular everywhere else, but he was very popular in Dallas. There was not much of an investigation even made of that. You know, you would think uh, that they would really want to know who had tried to supposedly kill a retired general, controversial though he was, and yet Walker didn't seem that interested in looking into it. The police didn't seem that interested in looking into it. Uh, now the the evidence about Oswald came out basically after Oswald's death. You didn't even hear much about this while he was alive those two days. It wasn't until after he was safely in the ground that people began talking about, oh, yes, I know he supposedly took shots at General Walker. And part of that came from his Russian-speaking wife. And once again, we're in a situation where she was there on a visa. She could be sent back anytime. And she had one child that was an American citizen, one child that wasn't. One would go with her. One would stay in America, possibly. What would you say if your husband was dead? You didn't, may not have known all of it, but you were trying desperately to stay in this country. Most people suspect she said whatever the FBI told her to say. Gotcha. So there's a lot of information to kind of say, like, they built a case behind what they wanted to be true. Right. True. Interesting. So, I mean, just trying to, like, pick this whole thing apart, you know, from what we, we think we understand to where we're headed. All all of the, the scene setting is correct, right? Like, JFK was supposed to be on this trip he was in the right place the right time happened to be you know in dallas at dealey plaza where he was shot and then we start to unravel like well the shooter may not be very plausible there's a lot of setup behind it and some kind of you know even background that they might have been using a namesake for some other kind of operation uh, are you talking about, for example, the fact that there were two previous plots that had been circumvented just a few weeks before, one in Chicago and one in Tampa? Um, this wasn't the first attempt on his life, but the official stepped in and managed to circumvent that. But something, as one man told us whose father had been in the Secret Service, something went terribly wrong in Dallas. Yeah. And I had heard that there were previous attempts, but it just seems like, you know, as you were saying, like there's multiple identities of, 
you know, this Lee Harvey Oswald in different places at different times and all these different stories keep popping up. You know, it kind of sounds like we are removing him from our suspect pool. Well, one thing that Sarah and I have done when we had conferences, sometimes we would start with the question, what would have happened if Lee Harvey Oswald had called in sick that Friday? Would there have been someone else there who was going to be a patsy? And the answer to that probably is yes. And that was kind of famously what Lee Harvey Oswald shouted before he was shot, right? Didn't he shout like, I'm a patsy, I'm a patsy. Yes, and it makes sense that they couldn't guarantee Lee Harvey Oswald wouldn't get in the fender bender and not make it to the depository. And there were two or three other people, including uh, the young man that drove him to the depository, who they um, arrested and accused of being an, uh, an, uh, an accomplice with Oswald. And then a young man from Ranger, Texas, named Donald Wayne House, that was arrested by the Fort Worth police. And they thought they had the assassin right yeah, there. they did. Until they got a phone call from Dallas and said, let him go, whoever he is. We had the guy here in Dallas, and the man objected and said, no, you don't understand. I have all this evidence against him. And he yes, said, let yes. him go. We've got our man. Including a rifle. It was interesting. You know, you hear that only one rifle was found that day. Uh, the people that found the original, the, the rifle. And in their testimonies and their affidavits, they said it was a German Mauser. These are gun and rifle specialists. They said it was a Mauser. Not until that gun was being walked over to the sheriff's department and the, did it become a Carcano. And that is because they believe a Lee Harvey Oswald or Hadell ordered a Carcano. So now at 12 a.m., it is magically a Carcano that is being held up. But there was a British Enfield found on the roof of the school book depository. Buell Frazier also had an Enfield. There was a Carcano found by ATF Ensworth, and it was on the fourth floor in the stairwell. There was supposedly what we go by, what you first see, those officers found a Mauser on the sixth floor. There was a semi-automatic Johnson rifle found behind the gondolas on the grassy knoll, but you don't hear any of these rifles being put into evidence except for the Carcano, and that's because they believe they could attach that to Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, it's it almost sounds like one of those jokes like, ah, welcome to Texas, there's a gun on every floor. Well, that wasn't as far-fetched as you would think. It was hunting season. And at that time, I remember, Colton, young men used to bring their hunting rifles in the back of their pickups and leave them, I mean, park their, their pickup at school. It was that safe a time as far as, you know, weapons and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, yes, that was.
was kind of a joke. But you remember when they asked Oswald, did you bring a rifle to the depository? He said, I saw a rifle in the depository a couple of days before the assassination. And he was right. William Shelley had had his supervisor had had a rifle there uh, that he was showing off to, uh, and who was with him, I've forgotten, one of the other employees that they were showing this rifle off. And Oswald probably did see it. Uh, now, whether it got left there, hey, that's anybody's guess. I mean, it sounds like we have no shortage of guns in the area and also no shortage of government agencies in the area. Like you said, we've got marshals, exactly. we've got FBI, the Secret Services here, potentially the CIA, there's a police department, a sheriff's office. Like, we have every square inch of this place covered with some kind of gun. <laughs> like, everyone's got right. a gun in all directions. And unfortunately, we also have no shortage of people who had my motive to get Kennedy, to have Kennedy killed or to kill Kennedy. Uh, after his death, he became a martyr, and you would have thought he was the most loved person in the United States, but that was not true in, in the South, particularly. Yes, I'd heard there's quite a lot of, like, in his final months, he angered quite a lot of people. Like, he had Soviet enemies, he had Cuban enemies, he had uh, big industry enemies, he had, you know, like, in all directions, like, he was making enemies out of heads of the CIA, out of other politicians, like, no shortage of FBI, enemies. Texas soil, the Federal Reserve Board, mafia, military intelligence, ultra-conservatives, and anti-Castro Cubans because of the botched Bay of, Bay of Pigs. And then you have LBJ. <laughs> and who wanted this tour through Texas? It was LBJ and Conley. And Colton, one of the things as educators, we work at a small college, we encourage the people in our audiences and particularly our college students, go back and do original research, find original newspapers, magazines. You can find, and we've shown them, magazines with headlines, will Kennedy uh, win 1964? That was the question that was a big headline on one magazine. Will Kennedy dump Johnson? And on the paper in the Dallas uh, Morning News, the day Kennedy was killed, there was an article quoting Richard Nixon saying, yes, he thought Johnson was going to be dumped as vice president. So, yes, they, we really were in quite a turmoil, whether people thought so later or not. And it, it's quite different from what had preceded this. Think about FDR had won easily three terms. Uh, Eisenhower had no problem getting reelected. And yet all of a sudden, here's this young man who barely, barely won the election to begin with. And there's still controversy over who had outcheated whom, who might not get reelected. So that was one reason why he felt like he had to come to Texas. He had to win over Texas. He needed those votes. And I'm not sure he was this time LBJ would help him. Yeah, and that was one of those, like, the last quote that I think I've heard famously is as they're driving just before all these, the you know, the shots ring out and he's shot, they say, well, you can't say Texas doesn't love you, something like that, right? Well, it was, Ellie Conley said you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, Mr. President. Yeah. 
And I know. And she said later, you know, she thought about that the rest of her life. That one, the last words he heard were, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, because again, this is still a sitting U.S. president. Like, he is still doing a parade, essentially, through a, a very populated area, which is not something we obviously do anymore. But, like, he is showing, you know, quite a lot of publicity out here. Yes, yes. And, and in a way, like he said, he didn't want to appear to be afraid to ride in a convertible through any uh, American town. And I don't blame him for that. That is That would be embarrassing to say I'm afraid to go to certain places. They hate me too much. But the Secret Service in Dallas did not do their job. In Houston and San Antonio, they made sure people weren't en route that they weren't on fire escape, that windows were closed, the Secret Service and either city police or sheriffs were on the buildings in Houston and San Antonio. There are pictures where you can see that. In Dallas, the sheriffs were told to stand down, so they were all facing uh, Kennedy instead of amongst the crowd and there were people hanging on the fire escapes, hanging out windows, and the Secret Service did not do their job. And that brings us to, we assume the only story of that day is that somebody, whether it was Oswald or someone else, shot Kennedy from somewhere in Dealey Plaza. We can't even guarantee where it came from. But what we don't know is, there were, like Sarah said, there were so many people hanging on fire escapes, hanging out of open windows on top of buildings. Who is to say how many other assassins there may have been between Lovefield Airport and Dealey Plaza who just simply didn't get a chance to shoot? And at yeah. the trademark. And at the trademark where he never made it. Uh, we do know that Good told us that they thought it would be more apt to, he would be more apt to be attacked at the trademark or on the way back to Lovefield. They didn't really expect it in Dealey Plaza. Yeah, this was not exactly like a short route. And, you know, they're making quite a lot of public appearances. Like, this could have happened, you know, 60 times across the entire distance of this place. Like, there's no shortage exactly. of spots. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, we've seen photos of people standing on fire escapes. Nobody was checking those people for weapons the way, you know, they would be nowadays. Any one of them could have pulled out a pistol or something. And like Kennedy said, if a man is willing to give his life for his, there's nothing you can do about it. But these people could have blended in with the crowds, and I'm not sure they would have ever found them. In our book, we have a section on Oswald. Actually, we have two. And one section deals with who is Oswald? Was he in Russia, but yet there was someone also Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans at the same time. Was he in Mexico during September that they that some say he was, or was he in Houston where we do have a witness who saw Lee Harvey Oswald with Charles Rogers and Charles Harrelson? Or was he in Austin? 
that's why we say, who was the real Oswald? We know by going through the archives and all those documents that have been released, the ones that Trump had released, they were really redacted, but they forgot to redact Oswald's FBI number and his intelligence number. Those were in there. And so who was Oswald? Did he work for the military? Was he always military? And we have found out through our research that when you're in the military, you can also be called to work for mafia or other agencies uh, like the CIA. And was Oswald one of those? We also, through our research, found a gentleman who had met Jack Ruby, and Jack Ruby had a top security clearance. So who really was Jack Ruby? Who were some of these players? Yeah, Colton, this man was a man named Mel Barney from Dallas who worked for Texas Instruments. And he was writing a a book on something else entirely on Texas Instruments, and he found a manifest. He was he's uh, he may still be alive. We visited with him not long ago. He um, he was a brilliant man. He invented a type of autopilot that would fly a small plane 250 feet above the ground on autopilot, something that you know they had not been able to do before. And, of course, you have to ask, why would you ever want to fly a small plane on autopilot that low? Well, it just depends on who wants to fly the plane. But what on his manifest, he found the name in 1959 twice, Jack Ruby. And so, you know, he started thinking back. And when we asked him, we said, well, now, Mr. Barney, how how do you know it was that Jack Ruby? And he looked, he got kind of embarrassed, and he said, well, I hate to admit this, but he said, when out, when uh, people from other companies would come to Texas Instruments and talk to us about buying products, I would have to entertain them on Saturday nights, and they always wanted to go to that stupid carousel club. So he said, I knew who Jack Barney was, uh, Ruby was, and he knew I was Mel Barney. So he said, I got to thinking. I knew which Jack Ruby had gotten onto my plane. And I said, well, what's so special about that? And he said, because you had to have either FBI or CIA approval to have your name on that list. Nobody else could fly on that plane. And he said, that's why I saved this manifest and took a picture of it to prove this guy was more than just a cheap nightclub owner which makes his killing of Oswald even more intriguing. Yeah, we've kind of got these interesting characters that like make up the tapestry of the story because, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was like prior military, then Russian defector, then, you know, back in the U.S., and then he was a Castro supporter, and then like suddenly presidential assassin, and then you have Jack Ruby, and they're like, yeah, nightclub owner. And you're like, okay, well, there's a lot of issues with a nightclub owner just walking into a secure custody area and, you know, assassinating a guy who just supposedly shot the president. 
Good point, yeah. One thing we've learned from some of our witnesses who are military intelligence, that if you have something the military wants and you want to get out of the military, you want to retire, you never retire. If you have a skill that they want, they will continue to use you. So if we say the Oswald that went to Russia deflected, he had been military, was he really out of the military? Because the military, if they want to use you, they will continue to use you and they will offer you out to other government agencies like the CIA or Ma- and then or groups like the mafia. Because one, one thing is that you won't talk. If you're in the military, you sign that confidentiality agreement. And if you are you talk when you're in the mafia, you don't live very long. Same well, with CIA. And that goes along with not only was Oswald uh, had a 201 CIA file, not only had he been in our U.S. military, his uncle by marriage was connected to Carlos Marcello, the mafia chieftain in New Orleans. He had his finger in every pie you could think of. And yet, you know, that makes him a perfect patsy, but it doesn't mean he killed the president. And there have been, I mean, as we kind of said, no shortage of conspiracies surrounding this, because while today we have a camera in every hand everywhere on the planet at all times, right. back then we really didn't have a lot of, like, video and photo evidence of this, you know, this experience, this moment to kind of say like, oh, this is what happened. This is what we saw from, you know, 3,000 angles. There were several individuals that day in the plaza, whether they were, quote, Secret Service, FBI, CIA, that if they saw you with a camera or a video machine, they went up to you and said they needed that for evidence and that they would get it back to you. They confiscated a lot of film that day and it was never given back to the people. So we don't know if we could have seen all those videos that day instead of just the Sapruder film, what else would we be able to see? Yeah. And that's kind of, what everyone has seen if they've looked at the JFK assassination video, right? That's the Zapruder film. Right. Yes. Okay. But uh, Colton, there's a lot of questions as to whether what we saw even on television uh, in the seventies had already been altered because once they started interviewing people who had actually worked on the film when they were developing it, and making copies for the Secret Service. Uh, the ARRB, the Assassination Research Board, found some people who said, now that that is not what I saw. That's not the position his head was in. And once they realized that, these were the only people who would have known something was different because the public hadn't seen it. And yet they were pointing out that's not what it looked like in 1963, two days after the president's assassination, when I was working on this and making a storyboard of it. Something has been changed. So who's to say what the real 
I mean, it's, uh, the only thing the man said that he knew was different, he said there was more blood and gore up in the air than this the Pruder film shows. It was much more horrible even than this was. Gotcha. Yeah, we've kind of been given a very limited resource, and they're like, well, that's all you get. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So before we start getting into, you know, some of what you've learned and where we think this is really headed, what are some of the most nonsense conspiracy theories that you've heard out there that you can just like immediately, like none of these are even viable? Well, some people think Jackie Kennedy turned around and shot him. <laughs> okay. Now I have to admit, we, we do sometimes kind of laugh and say now, if this had not been the president of the United States, would we have been looking for a disgruntled husband? Yes, we might have. <laughs> uh, the secret service shooting him. Meaning the driver. Turning around and accidentally shooting him. Well, not accidentally. One accidentally well, and one not. Right. The driver, some people have said, and, and I grant you there are photos where there is some shadows to this effect, that it looked like the driver turned around with a pistol and fired between the Conleys and hit Kennedy straight on, and nobody notices it in the car except Kennedy. So that or didn't the make secret sense. service in the second car. Yes. Shooting him with a rifle. There's an actual book about the fact yeah. that an agent may have accidentally hit him yes. from behind. Yes, I think that is probably my the favorite that I have heard, but probably the least exciting theory. And I believe that's, I'm going to get this wrong, but Howard Donahue? Um, yes, yes. And he said, Secret Service agent, uh, George Hickey, because everyone else in the car that was his senior agent was hungover or still drunk from the night before. Um, so mm -hmm. they had given this rookie agent the rifle and that he had accidentally or intentionally discharged this rifle from behind, essentially making this whole thing like a workplace accident instead of like a giant murder conspiracy. Well, you'd be surprised how many people, I mean, and I read that book, too, because I was fascinated with the idea of that mortal era. Uh, but one thing we did is look at photos almost immediately after, and there is the picture of Hickey holding the AR rifle. But nobody in that car is jumping, turning around, looking at him, right. looking startled. And I don't think you could fire off a weapon that large without somebody in the car reacting. And there doesn't appear to be any reactions from anyone else. No matter how hungover you are. Yeah, you'd have to jump a little bit when yeah. somebody fires that big a rifle next to you. And I would think the driver might hit his brakes, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. and, and none of that reaction is ever shown in any photographs. Gotcha. Yeah, part of their argument was that, like, there had to be some kind of, of gun fired at street level. Because people had claimed that they thought the Secret Service was shooting back and that they could, yeah. uh, either they saw a muzzle flash from somewhere or they could smell gunpowder at street level. And well, like, I, that's... several people mentioned smelling, uh, smelling gunpowder, yeah. uh, which, yeah, is interesting that up that high on the sixth floor that in the wind blowing the way it was, they probably shouldn't have been able to. Uh, the second thing is I can imagine when they saw that man standing up in the back seat 
as he was. He was propped up kind of in the back seat with that rifle aimed towards the sky. They may very well have thought, oh, my gosh, he's shooting back at someone. And and I can see how that, that uh, rumor got started because it probably looked like he was shooting back at someone. Yeah, and, you- of course, there was some blood found on the north side of the grassy knoll that got cleaned up very quickly, and no one has ever come forward and said, well, I know where that blood came from. So kind of easy to, to eliminate some of these to just say, like, well, it's probably not Jackie. <laughs> like, we'd have probably seen yeah, one. Yeah. Not that she was <laughs> without, uh, you know, without any reason. Like, there was certainly quite a lot of news that would uh, probably you know, lead to a scorned wife in that situation, but right. pretty <laughs> unlikely in the middle of everybody in, in Dealey Plaza to just be like, this is the moment I'm going to shoot the president, my husband. Yeah, let's not do it at the White House behind closed doors. Let's do it in front of God and everybody. <laughs> yeah. So probably pretty easy to eliminate some of that. Um, any others that you just heard and you were like, there's nothing to support this? Well, there is there is a, a story about a group uh, who were very angry about what happened to the submarine, the Thresher, and they formed a group in the Dallas area called Justice for the Crew of the Thresher. And oddly enough, they did write a letter to uh, John Conley, because at the time this happened, he was Secretary of the Navy, and they said that they were very angry about the fact that the crew of this thresher had died. And uh, it was basically a big military cover-up, as apparently so often happens. And one of the warnings they gave in this letter, and I have read a copy of the letter, so it's, it's not made up. They said, Governor Conley, who he's governor at this point, had better not come to Dallas and ride in an open convertible with his family. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty accurate threat right there when you think about it. But as far as we know, we don't have any evidence to support that threat. But I wonder if later they thought, oh, I wish we hadn't said that. <laughs> this came too close to, to what we were warning him about. Yeah, you're like, we just weirdly that's, touched that's on a lot of details. <laughs> yes, exactly. The idea of don't bring your family and ride in an open convertible in Dallas. Uh, you know, I thought, yeah, I looked at that too. And I thought, wow, I wonder what they thought after the shots were fired at, you know, and some hit Conley, Oh, we're going to get blamed for this, but they never were as far as anyone knows. Okay. So what does the picture look like, you know, from the information you've picked up, like, where did you start seeing like, okay, let's correct this piece of information or, this is probably the new, you know, proposed series of events, given the new info. Well, after we met with um, Sonny Davis, that was his nickname, Robert T. Davis, you know, then we thought we, we need to start really trying to find people that were actually in the plaza. And that's when we found Lieutenant Good. And after he told us what he saw, that it was, a crossfire, that's when we change. So there's more now players. It, and when he said he knew two Oswalds, we totally switched from it. It can't be uh, just one person. 
So then we interviewed people who were actually in this, worked in the school book depository and were on the steps that day. We interviewed a gentleman who was sitting at the, on the sidewalk and his name uh, is Jim Bolden. And he really liked the Sapruder film because he said that is not what he saw. He was front row right there. And that's when he said the Sapruder film is not what I saw. So then we started looking into that. We, um, you always hear stories that there were men in suits that were there when Oswald was being embalmed and they wanted his fingerprints on the rifle. So it's like, man, we need to find someone who actually was there that day. And we found Tommy Wright. He was in the canine unit and he and another member of the canine unit were guarding Oswald's body while he was being embalmed. And so they would go in and to, because it was cold that day, get warm. They saw the men working on Oswald and soon men in black suits did come in, asked them all to leave and they all had to leave. They had a rifle in their hand and that Paul Grudy, when he went back in the mortician, he then found ink on Oswald's fingers. So through our research, we were proving or disproving these tales that people were saying. Yeah, because you're like, it's a very interesting story that we're hearing, but can we back any of this up? Like, is is there evidence to say, like, right. oh, yes, it's true? And, and that's what we wanted to do with our book. Okay, these are things that we've heard over the years. Let's follow the evidence. We need to prove these things and prove what these people are telling us. So with Lieutenant Good, there was another team that day that we spoke with, with someone on their team. It was a different type of team, and they were on the South Knoll up in the trees um, and on the curb by the grassy knoll. But this was a different team. It was a team of mafia, Cubans, and military intelligence. And what the member of this team told us was there was a shot from the South Knoll. They smelled the, the smoke and gunpowder from that shot. So with him telling us that, that could verify what Good and the U.S. Marshal had actually stated also so we tried to do that we tried to see if others could verify our research of another primary source so what we were what we ended up having is pieces to the puzzle that we would try to put together with some other piece and see if it fit one of the people that we interviewed several times we were lucky enough to get to know this woman for several years was a woman who had worked for Cliff Carter, who was Lyndon Johnson's right-hand man. And so she knew Carter very well. She knew Johnson very well. Uh, she had said, we brought up, okay, 
Iris Campbell, let's go ahead and just throw this out. We all know that there's a good chance Johnson was going to get kicked off of the uh, platform and be replaced as vice president in 1964. And she said, well, don't think Lyndon wasn't aware of that. He's heard those rumors, too. And she said, actually, there was already a plan in place to recall Lyndon to Texas because we needed him more in Texas than the job he was doing in the so-called vice presidency's position. And I remember thinking, well, that sounds like saving face. Yeah, there was a plan to call him back. And so what she really was saying is Lyndon did never intend in, uh, anticipate being president. That was what she was suggesting. But I have to admit, when I was in an antique shop in Austin, I found one of those political buttons from 19, in the early 60s that said, bring back Lyndon. So there really had been a program in place, a campaign that they were going to use to help him save face if uh, Kennedy told him that I really prefer another vice presidential candidate. And ironically, supposedly that conversation was going to take place at the ranch that weekend. And of course, Kennedy never made it to Lyndon's ranch. Yeah, I mean, by the time they'd been having that conversation, Lyndon was president. Yeah, so all the bring back buttons Linden buttons got tossed in the trash and thrown into antique shops. <laughs> but I did happen to find one. She was right. Apparently, that was a, one of the plans that they actually had set in motion just to help him save face, if nothing else. But then who's to say, one thing Robert Davis told us, and he knew Johnson well, he said, I don't care how involved Johnson is with something, you will never find any of his fingerprints on anything meaning he's smart enough to let everybody else do the dirty work and take the fall. Bobby Baker went to prison. Uh, Rufus Johnson went to prison. Billy Saul Estes went to prison. Who knows? And Iris Campbell told us she would go to prison for Johnson. And this was after Johnson was dead. So I guess he instilled that kind of loyalty in these people. Or fear, who's to say? Yeah, certainly one or the other. We don't know what he might have held over uh, Iris's head, but that doesn't mean there wasn't something. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's certainly like a common practice, right? All of these people that you're seeing out of the CIA or the FBI, like they want to hold the information so they have something that you're going to do me a favor because I said so. Yeah, well, or I'll be talking and you'll wish I hadn't, yes. Yeah. So you had a couple of pieces that kind of lined up. Do we actually have like any autopsy photos or information from JFK's autopsy? Tell me about James Jenkins. We met a gentleman at one of the conferences who was at Bethesda that day, and his job was to write down the face sheet as they were doing the autopsy. And he was an intern and under military and so he, because it's military, everything was done with military time, military wording, and he filled out the face sheet, and he was called in at 2 in the morning when, after everything was cleaned up 
he was asked to sign a, the confidentiality agreement. And when he saw that face sheet, it was not what he filled out. It was not in military time. It didn't have his signatures on it. There were things scratched out and you don't scratch out when you're doing a formal military form. And one thing he told us about the autopsy was when the body came into them, the spinal column had already been severed. And it wasn't a straight sever that someone would do in an autopsy. It was jagged. But we asked him, now, are you, it's not something a bullet could have done. He said, oh, no, absolutely not. He said it meant somebody had started with a scalpel on one side, then tried it on the other side, and the two didn't quite line up. Like normally you make a very Strange. single, you know, slit. And so it, we were all just flabbergasted because, like he said, that meant someone had had access to this body. Well, he said, we didn't know. We assumed that in Dallas they had started the autopsy. Well, we know that did not happen. But somebody had started the so autopsy. where did that preliminary or first autopsy take place? And why? Because that was a big point of contention, right? They had said, like, hey, this is still a crime in Texas, and Texas law says yes. we're doing all of this work here in Texas. You're not taking this body yes. anywhere. Yes. And if, if they had let Dr. Earl Rose do it, we would know exactly what had happened. He was an honest uh, forensic expert, but he also would have done it by the book, and nobody would have had time to mess with this body. And I know you'll hear people say, well, now that's just the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard of. How could it have happened? I'm not sure anyone knows exactly how it happened. There are lots of problems with the... Uh, ambulance getting lost on the way to Bethesda from Andrews Air Force Base and the uh, uh, military that was supposed to be following it. The honor guards lost track of it, didn't know where it was. So, I mean, there it was like the Keystone Cops, but maybe it was a deliberate Keystone Cop routine and it gave time for something to happen. People have suggested that the body might have been moved out of the casket while the oath of office was taking place and moved perhaps to either the press airplane, which was still there at Love Field, or to the vice president's airplane. Um, one thing I asked uh, a steward who, who was the last living steward who'd been on Air Force One that day is whether it would have been possible to take a body or anything else for that matter down below once the airplane was in the air. And he said, absolutely not. There was no way back then. Now there is. Now there are stairs and you can go down to below where they get to keep the food. But back then you couldn't. And also it would have been very, very cold in that part of the airplane flying that high. So we assume somehow or another that body got to some sort of area, even if it was a different part of Bethesda sooner than we expected and somebody was able to I think they were probing for bullets because everyone who talked later in the autopsy said everything the FBI and, and the uh, people controlling the autopsy all they wanted to know is did you find bullets where are the bullets 
We also spoke with a gentleman, Mr. Clark, who was on the honor guard. And what he told us was when they were carrying the coffin out of that plane and putting it in the ambulance, it wasn't heavy enough to have a body in it. That's food for salt. Yeah, and there was something I had heard about, and I don't know if this was entirely conspiracy or if this is something that happened, was the coffin changed somewhere in this, like, three stooges, people getting lost and people showing up and people finding each other and getting a coffin onto the plane and off the plane. I had heard that, like, one of the coffins was too large and they ended up having to, like, break handles off of it. And then when it showed up, you know, wherever Air Force One was landing, it was an entirely different coffin. Well, now that it is true. You can see the pictures of them mm-hmm. forcing that beautiful coffin that they uh, brought to Parkland in through the doors, and it did break the handles off. Uh, and that coffin did show up later at Andrews, but what also showed up at Bethesda Hospital where they were doing the autopsy was what's called a shipping coffin, exactly like men from Vietnam were being shipped home in. Uh, much smaller, just a, you know, basically uh, Bolton Mechanics, you know, uh, coffin, not anything fancy whatsoever. And we talked to uh, Dennis Davis, who had been on duty that night. He was the chief of the day at the Naval Bethesda that night. And he said, I saw that shipping coffin. I saw it brought into the autopsy area, I assume we were told that that's what the president's body was in. He said at that point, we hadn't had time to watch the news reels and see the coffin that was being loaded onto Air Force One. So we just assumed this was the coffin that he was in. And when they opened it, the body was in a leather a body bag which is not what had happened in Dallas. In Dallas, they had rolled him in clean white sheets and put him into that fancy coffin. So, yes, there there was some subterfuge going on. Uh, and if it was all accidental, why? And how would you have an accidental two coffins? Now, eventually he was buried in a different coffin from either one of those two because you know, the handles had been broken off, and let's face it, there had been some blood that had gotten into the fancy coffin uh, that he was put in in Dallas. So a brand new one was brought to Bethesda. But that doesn't explain why people saw two different caskets unloaded at the back door right around the autopsy theater not too far, not, you know, not too much time between each other. Yeah, like 20 minutes. 20 minutes apart, yeah. I believe. Yeah, it seems almost like one of these things that if everyone was acting independently, you could have had so many people pulling one over on each other time after time that this story would become nearly impossible to figure out. You're like, you know, there was several shooter teams and only one of them was taking a shot or two of them were taking a shot. They surprised each other. Somebody was switching bodies, somebody was switching caskets, somebody was switching doctors, somebody was switching notes. Like, there's a lot of room in here for multiple parties or agencies to get involved. That That's a very good point. And one of the documents that we found in the latest dump is one 
that just proved what people had all been saying for years is that this was a military request uh, from the CIA to uh, to have CIA uh, to have military soldiers who were already trained as snipers brought into the CIA so that they could then work for the CIA. So here they were once again, their thumbs in in, in two different pies. And what people forget is some of these people had relatives that were in the mafia mm-hmm. because the mafia gets drafted too. We don't ever think about that, but they do. And they serve in the military. And so here we've got people who may have loyalties to three different organizations. And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter to them who they're, who they're following orders is whoever pays me the best. But you're right. It, it, it did seem so absurd that you can see why people throw their hands up and say, look, I can't, I can't believe any of this. It's too complicated. And it is very complicated. Yeah. And I think that's part of why people don't like, you know, any of the presented solutions is they're like, you know, the Lee Harvey Oswald's too straightforward or it, if you start really looking into it becomes way too bizarre to follow. So you're like, it's either too easy or too hard. You know, some of these other ones you're like, it's just too simple. It doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. So where do we land? Like what is, what's our official. I think you could say that, um, the simple version certainly could have taken place. I mean, because people have been willing to give their lives to kill presidents. They tried it on Ford, several others. But usually they come forward and are proud of what they've done. Oswald kept protesting to the bitter end. I didn't have any, I didn't shoot anybody, cop or president. Uh, And when a gentleman did a voice analysis after his death, of course, from the tapes, he said, there was not enough stress in there to say that he was not telling the truth. He appeared to be telling the truth. I didn't shoot anybody. So in some ways, it's like, yes, the other flip of the coin is much, much more complicated. But wouldn't you expect a presidential assassination to be a little complicated? And then let's face it, the more you muddy the water, the less likely it is people are going to believe this is what happened. And a lot of these agencies act on a need-to-know basis. You only need to know what your duties are going to be. So we consider the assassination a three-part scenario, the planning of it. So the men or the groups that planned it probably didn't know anything about who was going to carry it out or who was going to cover it up. That group was on a need-to-know basis, whether they were funding it or they were planning the trip to Texas. Then you have the assassination teams and more than one team, more than one, could it be more than one team? Could it be more than one agency? Could it be hired? Could it be mafia, FBI, CIA? Um, And they only knew in their little group, say you have a team of three or four and you have them all over, you only know, like, say with good, he only knew in his abort team that his commander was U.S. Marshal Nash. He knew there were two other men, but he didn't know who they were. So 
did all teams work like that? And then you have your team to cover it up. And that was definitely Johnson behind the cover-up. Well, and there's certainly a lot to that, because you could give, I feel like you could give this assignment very easily and just say like, hey, you're the team, you're not planning the assassination, you're planning out the route and telling us where all the danger points are. Like, show us anywhere that could be really, really bad if there was a sniper. And the team's like, yeah, okay, we'll show you. And so they do the paperwork right. and you're like, well, hey, thanks for planning that for me. And they're like, planning what? And you're like, nothing, don't worry about us. Yeah, exactly, yes. And then the same thing, like, we can't pretend our agencies, uh, you know, ever hold hands and sing together. Like, they're very, you know, like, (laughs) this is my sandbox and you don't get to play in it. So the fact that they could have, like, no communication or thorough communication could go either way. Right. Well, and Colton, one of the things that was going on at this time is uh, people in America were outraged at Castro. And they may not have approved of some of the things we later found out our government did, but at the time, people did not like the fact that he had allowed uh, Soviet missiles to be moved to Cuba, and they were 90 miles from America, and they had very long-range missiles. Uh, So everyone was upset with Castro. And so that's one reason why some people got involved in gun running. They literally were making money off selling uh, don't ask us where they got them, but uh, weapons to the anti-Castro Cubans. But at the same time, big money, or picture this, if you were oil money or whoever, wherever you got your money from, and someone approached you and said, we need donations to help these anti-Castro Cubans get rid of Castro. He is a thorn in our side. Will you donate money that you do not have to account for and that we don't have to account for? I can picture a patriotic businessman saying, yes, I want rid of that sorry so-and-so. So you donate money that cannot be followed, and yet Castro is still with us year after year after year, but guess who isn't? John F. Kennedy. Would you even be able to admit I gave money to so-and-so and and I thought it was going to be used to kill Castro? That would pretty much shut you up about lots of things. Yeah, you certainly want to be like, oh, hey, I donated money to this group that, oh, no, may have killed the president. Does that make me semi-responsible? I I don't guess I'll take that off my income tax. Yeah. You know, like, I'm going to go ahead and erase any involvement I had just in case I get charged with treason all the same. Right. And some people may have honestly been sucked into something that they did not realize, you know, what had anything to do with Kennedy. And, and that may not be true, but it certainly could have happened. And then, of course, we found a record in this last dump that literally named Sam Giancana, Murray Humphreys, and one mafia member whose name they wouldn't mention. I'm suspecting it was either Johnny Roselli or Richard Kane. But whatever, they had given, according to an informant, who was a trusted informant, $280,000 to the CIA to help get rid of Castro because they wanted their casinos back. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt the mafia and the CIA were working hand in hand. And yet, at the same time, Robert Kennedy was trying to get rid of the mafia. So, 
So that put John F. Kennedy in a pretty bad and situation. John F. Kennedy trying to get rid of the CIA. Yeah. So, so kind of like, hey, these people had an axe to grind somewhere. Yeah, and it's not like that was going on behind the scenes. Like, RFK was very publicly going after the mafia. Right, and yeah. JFK, I think, made a statement that said, like, I'm going to scatter the CIA to the winds or something. Like, it was incredible. Yeah, that wasn't aggressive. made publicly. See, that was, the CIA knew he had said that, mm -hmm. but, but the rest of the world didn't. Oh, interesting. So many people with motive to want Kennedy right. killed, that that's one reason why it's so hard to narrow it down. But it also makes sense that why wouldn't you work together to get rid of a common enemy? Yeah. So we kind of had, you know, some information that said like this South Knoll, they found the gun casing, they found potentially some blood. They had multiple parties that definitely confirmed some kind of activity there. Are we pretty comfortable saying like there was definitely a shot from a third party there? Well, the blood was on the north, though. Oh, the north. But okay. yes. Nash and his group did find some casings on the south side. You know, where when you look at the picture of the grassy knoll and there are the steps going up to it, and then you see the gazebo on the right, on the left of the steps going up, there is a cement area, and that is where the pool of blood was found. And the two people that found that blood were asked a day later, they better not talk about it or their families were going to be killed. Wow. That's certainly an aggressive statement. Well, that's one of the questions we would ask some of these people. Why did you wait so long to talk? And what that gentleman said, if your wife and children had been threatened with their lives, would you have talked? And we said, no, we can't, we can't blame you one bit for not talking when your family's lives are at stake. Yeah, I mean, certainly Well, there's not. no telling how many people were in that position. Yeah. Well, especially because you're like, look, I saw some blood. I'm not going to risk my family's life over some blood when there is, you know, how many thousands of people all saw this. Like, somebody else will say something that's important. It does not matter if I talk about it. Well, as, as it turned out, only a handful of people did see it, and it was totally cleaned up by Monday. Which, you know, the city parks departments, they don't clean things up that right. quickly, <laughs> no matter what it was. And one of the, I grant you, one of the reporters, Hugh Ainsworth, tried to say that that was soda pop that someone had dropped. But when we asked uh, Cliff, uh, Jerry Coley about this, he said, the friend that I was with, the photographer from the newspaper, stuck his pinky into that, which he said, now with AIDS, we wouldn't even consider doing. But we didn't know. He stuck his finger in it and tasted it. And he said, it's he said, blood. that's blood. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that so would the be... The question a, is, who? Yeah, you definitely know, like, okay, that's not soda, for sure. Right, right. And, and once he did, he didn't know not to tell the FBI. He told the FBI about it. They were very interested. And by Monday morning, he went back to see if he could get another picture of it. And it was as clean as a whistle. And the friend that went with him said, I don't know what kind of cleaning agents they use, but it had to be pretty strong ones to get blood out of concrete. Certainly. So do we have any idea who is responsible for the shooting from the South Knoll? Oh, as far as names? Yeah, I mean, or just like a party, like, do we know, like, oh, this is for sure 
a mafia tie or this is for sure you know some kind of a castro tie like anything anything kind of well no one has has written a memoir or confessed that he was in that particular position but then they haven't always you'll hear several people say like james files oh i was behind the fence but you're right we haven't heard anyone, anyone. say i was on the south side but to me, that in some ways, that's more convincing than people jumping up and down saying, oh, it was me behind the fence. It was me. I think if you really had been involved in this, you wouldn't be telling people. Yeah, it seems very much like a deathbed confession where you're like, hey, uh, they just told me I've got like maybe an hour and I figured I would get this out of my system just in case, as long as there's no other family that I'm concerned about, you know. Well, see, E. Howard Hunt did make a deathbed confession listing all the people uh, that he knew were involved in this. Uh, and he, you know, that included himself to a certain extent. But they didn't say exactly where everyone was. And like Sarah said, not everyone knew every piece to the puzzle. They only knew where he or she was supposed to be. As one man told us, he said, you keep forgetting women make the best assassins. So, I mean, this seems like one of those that is is probably going to drive people nuts forever. Like, we're always going to be searching a bit for the, you know, who exactly was it? Where exactly was it? Why exactly was it? And it's really hard to gather any hard data to be like, it's this person at this place at this time with you know, whatever else, because so much of the stuff, like you said, has been obscured. Like, it's just impossible to find. Yes, but we do hope, particularly as educators, that the next generation will continue this, uh, because after all, it's been almost 60 years. There's very few people left, really, who were, who were there and remember, and within the next 10 to 15 yeah, years, yeah. they're going to be gone. So somebody needs to continue this unless we manage to get a confession that everybody agrees upon. Uh, not just because it's intriguing and Kennedy deserves justice, but because if this happens again, are we going to let them set up another Warren Commission and tell us, well, this is what happened. Trust us. Right. Or are we going to say, no, this time we're not going to buy all that. We want an honest investigation. We want to know who killed so-and-so. Yeah, and to some extent, this seems like this, the spark point that like everything happens from where modern conspiracy shoots out of this, and now people look at everything the government does much more skeptically. Where they're like, no, I remember the Warren Commission, so let's see this new report, and let's see some way better details. What I believe is this is a watershed before the American public was very naive and afterwards they started questioning. And we need to solve this mystery for our country alone, because whether it was government or it was international, we need to know so we can move forward and hopefully prevent it from ever happening again. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have, and I know you're, you're both very professional researching educators. It's not necessarily in your, your, uh, your background to just make wild guesses, but 
Do you have like a favorite theory where you're like, I think it was, you know, these people from this place at this time for this reason? Well, I think the CIA, the mafia and the military work together. Now, if there were other uh, groups involved and there could have been, um, we don't know much about them, but Again, we think of it as three parts. So the people planning it were probably different from the people hired to assassinate who were professional uh, snipers to the people who covered it up. So for the cover-up, you have to bring in Johnson. Politicians. And politicians. Um, For the other two, you can bring in what Katana said, CIA, mafia, military intelligence, but you're going to add in where are you going to get the money? Are you going to solicit money saying we, we have this project we want to do and not really telling people what the project is, but use that money to pay these assassins? To, to us, it's on a need-to-know basis. You mm-hmm. only know what is needed at that time for your duty. And then if you have to talk, you can only tell so much. But Colton, one thing we do want to make clear, we're not saying all of the FBI was involved, all of the CIA, all of the military. It, they weren't because there were some FBI agents that, bless their hearts, were out there digging for information even when the reports were basically thrown in the garbage when they turned them in. Uh, and I'm sure the same is true to the CIA, and I, you know all the military wasn't involved. But there apparently were certain elements that were. A chosen few. We met a gentleman that told us he was an assassin, and he told us about different projects he worked on. Now, he was military, but when he was called up to work on these projects, he went. And others in the military didn't know. It was just whoever his commander or his handler was knew what his project, special project was going to be. And this is probably how it worked that day. They had certain people that were going to work on a certain on this special project, and they only need they only knew what they needed to know to make it successful. Yeah, it's you know much like we talked about earlier, where they're like, "Hey, just give us the information regarding this." If you're military intelligence, like, how would you you know protect someone on this route, or you know how would you come at this route if it was an enemy position like that's very easy to say and then hey you know cia has i don't know assassins under their purview like easy to set them up and just say like here's a target that's all you have to worry about it's in and out we have entirely different teams taking care of everyone else exactly and when you think about it the military are taught to follow orders you don't you don't question why you're doing so. You just assume that you there is a good reason for this. Now the mafia the mafia follows orders too, but I think theirs has more to do with money, you know. But who knows? 
or maybe a matter of, well, if I don't do this, hey, I'm going to be dead anyway, so I better, you know. One of our voices, Iris, who we talked about before, she knew people in the mafia, and she needed a favor. And she told us, this is how the mafia works. If you ask them for a favor, they will come to you when they need a favor from you. And you don't get a pick and choose that you have to do the favor they ask. Isn't that what they could have done with Ruby? Ruby had asked the mafia for a favor, maybe money. And when they came calling, his job was to kill Oswald and he could not refuse. Yeah, it's very much like, yeah, it's not a yes or no situation. This is a yes right. and. <laughs> yeah, just tell me when and where. And all of these organizations, like, you know, it works on loyalty to a certain aspect. Like, you know, you are, if you're in the military, it is like commanding officer says it, you say, yes, sir. If you're in the yeah. mafia, like loyalty to the family is everything. So you got to follow what the family says and what the family does. You know, the same thing in all of these organizations, like there is always some kind of a hierarchy and a trust and a reason to be doing what you're doing. So it's certainly not hard to see that, like, any one of these could be or all of them could be culpable to some extent. Right. Well, I think this has been very interesting and I appreciate both of you taking the time to be here. And I wanted to make sure I gave you some time to plug the book you wrote and where people can find you if they're looking for more. Well, the title, once again, is The Lone Star Speaks, Untold Texas Stories About the JFK Assassination. Bancroft Press, uh, we were so lucky we sent it to one publisher, and he grabbed it immediately, and we know how lucky that is. And it's available either through them or through Amazon at Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million. You can request it probably at any local bookstore, and they can end up getting it for you. And our book is different. It, it is our witnesses' stories. And it, it reads quickly. And their stories need to be told and not lost because they feel part of the jigsaw puzzle that is so huge. And their stories are just amazing. And if we had not managed to preserve them, so many of the people have already passed away, uh, those stories would have been totally lost. And so that's why when people continue to come tell us stories, we write them down and save them in case we do an updated version of this. Because, you know, there's a reason why these people are telling us these stories. They waited all these years, but they really wanted someone to finally know this is what I saw. This is what I heard. Yeah, especially when from other sources, like they're being shut down or silenced or modified or any other number of right. things where they're like, nobody can hear what I'm saying because everyone's changing what I said. True. Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope people pick up the book and they enjoy it. If they've enjoyed this interview, I'm sure they'll love it. And wherever you pick it up from, if it's online, please remember to rate it five stars because that helps this book find other people who will also enjoy it and it helps your authors as well. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Colden. Yes, thank you so much. I have enjoyed this immensely. Thank you both for your time. Thank you mm -hmm. so much.
Do you feel more educated after listening to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If you enjoyed the episode, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really like what I'm doing here, remember to subscribe for two new episodes every week and check out the over 100 episode backlog. Let me know what you'd like to hear next by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or by sending a message to me on any of the show pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. The updated March rankings as we reach the last week haven't changed at all. The numbers are going up rapidly, but also really evenly. So number one, the United States with Oregon, Texas, and Washington as top states. Number two, the United Kingdom. Number three, Australia, led by Victoria. Number four, Canada, with Ontario as top province. And number five, Sweden, still led by Stockholm. That's it for today. I'll see you all back here on Thursday for a musical episode. Don't expect any singing, though. Bye bye